Libby Writes with Brian Scott Libby. Transcripts can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What is up on a Friday? I am Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Rights Podcast. Today, we have an awesome guest. We have Golf Digest Top 50 instructor, been a Golf Digest Top 50 instructor for about a decade, 2023 PGA Teacher Coach of the Year, Kevin Weeks. Kevin is the Director of Instruction at Cog Hill Golf and Country Club right outside of Chicago. May have heard of it. Guy named Tiger Woods has won there five times. We talked about Kevin's career in the golf industry, how he became one of the best putting instructors in the world. We talked about working with PGA Tour players such as Dickie Pride, Johnson Wagner, Michael Bradley, Mark Wilson, how he broke on to teaching and instructing PGA Tour pros, his career in the industry, his thoughts on the golf swing, and a whole lot of other stuff and some British Open thoughts, Open Championship thoughts. Sorry for the people across the pond there at the end. Kevin, awesome guy, Mississippi native, Ole Miss guy, MPW listener, really sharp dude. I really appreciate his time. I enjoyed this conversation. I think he will too. Uh, by one of the one of the best in golf instructors in the world. So buckle up. I think you'll enjoy it. Before we get to that, though, I wanted to remind you, the podcast is now brought to you by C Spire, a new partnership with the Rippy Rights Podcast. Thrilled to bring C Spire on board. The way businesses collaborate is changing. C Spire Voice with WebEx gives your organization the tools to stay ahead. Call, meet, and message on any device, anywhere from one secure cloud-based platform. The last few years have shown just how vital remote is remote work is for businesses of all sizes. But you also want to protect your organization from cyber threats. That's why CSpire Voice with WebEx has enterprise-grade security built from the ground up. So you can enhance how your teams work together in and out of the office, all with the reliability and scalability that traditional business phone systems just can't offer. Learn more at C- about what CSpire Voice with WebEx can do for your organization at cspire.com slash businesses. Seaspire, customer inspired. Also, check out their home internet. I have their home fiber internet. It's 2023. You can't be going with bad internet. I do the podcast with Seaspire internet. If it went in and out all the time and was not reliable, this wouldn't be a very good podcast. But thanks to Seaspire, I never have that problem. It is the most reliable internet on the market. Should there an issue arise, they'll have a technician come out to your home within 24 hours. But it is the most reliable and stable internet on the market. Check them out. Seaspire customer inspired. Podcast is also brought to you by Rent the Sip Oxford. That's right. Rent the Sip Oxford. Good friend of the podcast, Bracken Ray. His Turnberry unit located less than a mile from the Ole Miss campus can be your place to stay, whether you're passing through Oxford, whether it's a big game weekend, whether you're there for move-in, orientation, rush. It can be tough to find a place to stay in Oxford, particularly on bigger weekends. Rent the Sip Oxford's Turnberry unit has you covered, though. It will Sleep eight comfortably. It's got amenities such as a pool, sauna, and tennis courts. It's gated. It's great for games, orientation, rush, parents weekend. Still availability for the Mercer, ULM, Vanderbilt football weekend. Still available for orientation. Still available during throughout rush week and still available for moving week. And hey, maybe you just don't want to deal with the hotel and you're passing through Oxford for a night or two randomly. You need to check it out at rentthesipoxford.com. You can go online, check availability. If you listen to this podcast, you can get the Rippy Rights discount. That's 100 bucks off any two-night stay minimum. So go online, book your stay, type in Rippy Rights, and you'll get 100 bucks off a two-night minimum stay. It's a great place to stay, less than a mile from campus, straight shot to Swayze Field, almost a straight shot to Vaught-Hemingway, and, of course, walkable from the Grove as well. Need to check them out just there off Taylor Road, rentthesipoxford.com. If you have any questions, 
feel free to email Bracken, B-R-A-C-K-E-N, at rentthesipoxford.com. Book your stay before they fill up because football season's coming up and they will be filling up fast. So that is, once again, rentthesipoxford.com. All right, here is Kevin Weeks. All right, we now welcome on the newly minted PGA Instructor of the Year, Director of Instruction at Cog Hill, right outside of Chicago. Kevin Weeks, how are you, man? I really appreciate you doing this. Oh, I'm good. Uh, this is this is an honor to be uh, to be on the podcast. <laughs> you may be the first person that's fan, ever I'm said he's been honored. To it all the time, so to be on it. Yeah, <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, so I was looking into your background. I kind of, it was crazy. So I'd heard of you obviously for a long time through your work, through instruction. I grew up playing junior golf and all that, but I'd never really made the connection that we like followed each other in social media circles. I'd like learned recently that you're from Mississippi. And I was like, wow, holy shit. Like this guy, he's like from our same neck of the woods, which was wild to me. So I guess we'll start there. You are from Jackson. You went to Jackson prep, a proud MAIS alum. I don't know what it was called then, maybe MPSA. Um, but you go to Ole Miss. Did you play college golf? How did you get started in, in kind of golf and what was your path like? I, I got started in golf late. Um, I played every sport, but golf growing up and got hurt playing basketball and wound up, uh, gravitating to golf, uh, right before my, about my senior year in high school, um, and had some, some great instruction from, uh, Randy Watkins, and then at Ole Miss, Ernest Ross, and wound up walking on, and Ernest keeping me my fifth year up there, which, you know, in, in today's world with Title IX and, and everything, I wouldn't have happened because they wouldn't have taken somebody that couldn't really help them at the time. But I, I just made the most of an opportunity and, and worked hard, and the stars aligned. That's awesome. So you mentioned getting started in golf late and you're now uh, for like the recruiting process. That's almost impossible. A friend of mine, Hayden Buckley, who kind of sort of went that route. He's like a baseball player till 11th grade. Uh, the coach at Mizzou basically took him as a favor to his high school coach that I'd ever seen him hit a shot. That's like pretty rare nowadays, right? You got to get into it early. If you're not really kind of playing the AJGA circuit, major college is hard to get at. Like when you say you got started late, at what point did you know you could be a college player? Oh, I don't know that I ever did because they were so good when I was up there. But my roommate, Chip Sullivan, kept um, encouraging me to try it. He said, you can play. Uh, come on, keep. And he really encouraged me to keep trying and keep playing. And and I uh, I, I hung around. And you mentioned Randy Watkins earlier. You credit him to kind of getting you into the game, got some good instruction mm -hmm. for that. I was actually going to oh, ask yeah. you in a second if you knew him. Are y'all around the same age? I know he was at Ole Miss. Oh. Well, like early to mid-80s, Ernest is kind of first go around there. Were y'all there at the same time, or is he already out and teaching you? He was he was out and playing when I came in, but he was our pro at Castlewoods. And I actually wound up doing some caddy for him and some state opens and – uh, just because I worked hard and was always around. And I, I um, like we talk uh, quite frequently, talked to him a couple of days ago. Um, so we still have lines of communication and I wouldn't be here uh, where I am without um, Ernest and, and Randy and what they've done for me. 
he's been a huge uh, a huge presence for a positive nature in the Jackson golf scene. Uh, my father and I actually used to play in a father son Father's Day weekend tournament that he ran and he's done a lot of good things. I remember he did a huge renovation to this nine hole course called the floors bluff. That was probably one of the worst golf courses you could ever trudge through. And then his group took it over and it became much playable and fun golf course. Cause it was kind of a cool layout. So he, he starts instructing you. He kind of encourages you a bit. You get told miss, you mentioned walking on what, uh, take me through like the, the latter part of that. So you get out of college. Uh, I thought it was a nice flex on your Facebook bio. You said you majored in studying and having fun at Ole Miss. I could probably credit the same thing as my marketing degree did not go very far, at least <laughs> immediately. What is kind of your path? Like when you get done with college golf? Uh, I got through, got through at Ole Miss and I'm not cut out to be in an office. That's just ADHD people in offices just that just doesn't go well and didn't know what I was wanting to do and Randy asked if I wanted to work at, at Castlewoods sure so I, I didn't know what I wanted to do I knew I wanted to do something in golf I wasn't sure what the opportunities were the because there was nobody at that time we're talking this is 87 88 um nobody was really teaching full-time and Ernest had helped me a, a, a little bit and um, I was working for Randy, and then Ernest got the job at the Country Club of Jackson, and I was splitting time with, with both places, and um, it was it was quite the quite the juggling act, and trying to find my way exactly what I wanted to do, and I was always intrigued with the teaching, and I wound up getting on at uh, Grand Cypress in Orlando, and. That was a great opportunity. If you really worked at it and wanted something, they had something for everybody, whether it was golf shop operations, tournament office, or instruction. And that's truly what got the ball rolling was encouragement from Ernest and Randy and, and the people there. So Ernest actually taught me how to play golf. I grew up playing at Country Club of Jackson when I was uh -huh. a, a younger, younger mm -hmm. kid. I used to go to his golf camps every summer. He goes back for his second stint as the head coach at Ole Miss and a guy named Tim Basil. Um, he didn't take over his head pro. They hired Jason Prendergast, if I remember correctly. But Tim kind of taught me how to play after that. So I knew Ernest Freo from a pretty young age. And he, of course, goes back to Ole Miss. So he encourages you to get into the teaching piece of it. You mentioned getting down at the club in Orlando. At what point did you realize you were pretty good at the teaching aspect of it? Like, when did you know, hey, I kind of have a knack for this and this could be something I'm really good at? Well, I was always interested in, even when I was at Ole Miss, I spent a lot of time watching the guys hit balls, and some of them hit it better than others, but the others put a score on the board. And I, what intrigued me was trying to figure out what enabled them to put scores on the board, even though their swing wasn't as textbook as the other person. And to find that line was really what, what interested me. And a lot of questions from both to both uh, Randy and Ernest about tons of questions and what was this person do? Why does this work? Why doesn't this work? Why did this player do this? And it, it just it just morphed from there. I always had an interest in what made things work. I was a kid that always took the clock apart to see what made it work. I couldn't put it back together but I wanted to see what made what work. 
that makes sense. And so the you're kind of interested in the technical piece of it. And that's always a very fascinating line to me is the teaching side of it versus the playing side of it. And it's not only just figuring out what works, it's also being able to convey it to whoever you're teaching it to. What was the learning process of that like? Like it's one thing to take a clock apart, you figure out how it works. How did you learn to convey that to whomever you were instructing? I'm still learning. Um, it, trial and error, going to watch a lot of really good teachers teach. And that was the great thing about Cyprus. They had a state-of-the-art learning center there with uh, one of the first biomechanical models. So everybody wanted to go what? So the director of instruction there, Fred Griffin, if you ask him, hey, listen, I'd like to go watch, so who should I go watch? He would send you to Greenleaf to watch a guy by the name of David Ledbetter. Yeah. Uh, you'd send you to Craig Shanklin, you, and, and you just go watch good teachers and watch how they communicate because teaching is nothing more than communicating. And you, ha- I, the best teachers know five or six ways to say the same thing because Way number one, way number two may not work, but way number three might work. And it's figuring out how that person learns, how to how to communicate with them to get your point across is the big thing in, in, in golf instruction. And so you get started down there at Cyprus in Orlando. Did you would you say you had a big break moment? When did from you know, Kevin Weeks at Cog Hill and been there as long as you have and been in the top 100 teachers for almost a decade now. At what point did you feel like your career took off? Was there another stop in between? I tried to piece together as best I could, um, you know, kind of your pass along the way and kind of how you got to where you're at today. But what what point did you figure this thing's really taken off for me? Um, I knew that's what I wanted to do. And after going through Grand Cypress's training, I knew I needed to give golf lessons. And they were the they were really busy, but they had the same group of teachers divided up the lessons, and very few got down to where I was. So I went and taught at a club in Ohio. I went and taught the place in Nashville. And then I went to John Jacobs Golf Schools, where Jacobs literally sent me to seven or eight states a year. And then I taught with Golf Digest. So I moved all over. I was counting the other day. I'm great in, in U.S. geography. Because I've taught in 38 states. Wow. Is that something so you just do as part of the life? Like, I got to move around if I want to move up? Yes. If I wanted to get better, and I was very driven to get as good as I could get, and I went, and even the days that I wasn't teaching at the schools, I went and watched the other teachers. I watched the good ones and the ones I didn't think were very good. Because uh, you can learn what to do as well as what not to do by watching other people. And I literally was a sponge. And I'm sure I bored, I just annoyed them to death asking questions. But at the end of the day, I would always have a notebook full of questions to ask the teachers. What, that, that rippy kid, okay, you did this to him, why? And that's that's truly what I was looking for because there was – you know, you teach your teacher Jacobs to get 90 people a week. That's 90 lessons you get to give over five days. You add that up. That is a lot of reps because, you know, how do you get better at anything? The reps of doing it, you do your homework, you do your study, you try to come up with new ideas, and then you get to practice it on 90 people a week. That was fantastic. 
in some ways, I imagine too, there's a caring element to where the people that really put in the time and do the homework rise to the top. And the way you just described it is probably a pretty good example of it. You mentioned you give 90 lessons a week. A lot of times that's probably 90 people a week. You know, I had a couple of different places that I took lessons from when I was in elementary school and junior high, some better than others. There were a couple of people where I was like, this guy probably actually doesn't remember. I came in last week and he just tell me something different this week. But then there were quite a few that kind of remembered and knew it worked for me. I imagine that's a piece of it too, is retention of kind of actually taking the time to study each one of your clients and remember what works well for them, what you guys have been working on and trying to keep all that organized. I imagine has to be a little bit difficult too. Well, it is, and that's the great thing with technology these days because basically every every lesson, you get airdropped your lesson at the end of it and of everything we do on the computer. And then at the end of the day, I go back and relook at those. What did, what, uh, okay, I told Scott this, what should I have told him? Now that you sit and think about it, you've got time. You're, you're, you're not in the rush, rush hour, next, next, next mode. What would I tell him? Okay, I would do this. And then on the, the morning of the lessons, I get there and then I rewatch what we worked on. And then I check to see how are they on the plan? Are they doing what they're supposed to? Did they practice their drills correctly? And that's the, the manner in which you do things. You mentioned all the different places you've teached, but from what I have here in my notes, that from the time you left Ole Miss to the time you got to Cog Hill, that wasn't some large two-decade amount of time before you finally get there. So you mentioned moving around a bunch. Kind of give me the Cliff Notes version of like the different stops and how you got to Cog Hill. Uh, I, uh, I went from Grand, let's see. Boy, you're asking me to go back a long time in memory. <laughs> I went from... Uh, from uh, Grand Cypress to a place in Ohio, back to Grand Cypress, to John Jacobs Golf Schools. And then Jacobs, I worked um, seasonal at Jacobs and a little bit at COG. And then with Golf Digest, I was working in the summers in Chicago and one winter in San Diego and then two winters in West Palm and then back to full time at, at COG Hill. You mentioned working with Golf Digest, obviously in the golf world, that's a very huge publication, very, you know, one of the, I would say, core staples of mainstream golf media. When you say you were working with Golf Digest seasonally, they had you moving around a couple of different places. What does that job look like? That's fascinating to me. I'd never actually heard of something like that. Yeah, that that was back when golf schools were a big thing. And you'd let it literally, they, uh, they had golf schools that actually had started a number of years before. And you would have six, eight people. And I was at uh, Madeiras in Poway as well as um, I would go out to true North and in, in Phoenix. If, uh, if the numbers, if I was needed and you just went wherever you were needed that week, uh, one of those two places, you'd have six to eight people and you, you, uh, you gave lessons in the morning and you played with them in the afternoon. So in some ways, it's not the exact same, but it's a little bit like a traveling nurse. You're just sent where you're needed. You're kind of mm -hmm. expected to be on the move and you just show up to the place they ask you to and you start teaching those people. Is that so imagine you're you're fairly young at that point. Doesn't sound like you have any problem mm -hmm. moving around the country. Was that something you enjoyed going to these different places and seeing these different things? Because some people like that kind of thing and others are very reserved in that in that regard. I I, I was 
was married at the time. I had a wife that understood what I needed to do to get where I wanted to go. And it was what I enjoyed the teaching portion. And I moved around doing what I had to do to get where I wanted to go. It was the way I looked at it. It was just like minor league baseball. It was just a, a step in the, in the direction where I wanted to go. That was double or triple A baseball for me. When you're working your way up and you're learning a lot, what's the balance? I know it was probably slightly different then as opposed to now, but did you ever feel the urge is like, I need to latch on to a younger player that I think maybe has a chance to make the PGA tour or you're just teaching whomever you get at the golf digest stops. Did, was that ever a focus for you? It's like, can I keep a good base of kids or college players or whatever they may be in the process that have a chance to make it in professional golf? No, I just looked at it. It was, as it was practice. It was a way to get better at what I was doing. Uh, uh, at that time, I really even never set out to teach tour players. Uh, that just kind of fell into my lap. Um, but that wasn't something that, that that I set out to do. I did, um, after my first year at Cog Hill, my wife asked me, said, well, what do you want to teach? I looked at it, I went, golf. She was no dummy. What what do you want to what do you want to market yourself toward? Me with the marketing degree was wondering what I should. She was the one asking me what I needed to market myself to. Um, tell me I did not kick my coverage, um, and I said I want to develop juniors. I wanted to teach good players and develop them, and that's what I did was marketed myself to the juniors to to develop them. And so the Cog Hill opportunity, you mentioned you were working there part-time, mm -hmm. then you go back full-time. That's obviously a very famous club. I believe uh, someone named Tiger Woods, who people might have heard of, has won there like five times. Very prestigious club, mm -hmm. four different courses, very seemed like a pretty good history in like training and instructing. Was that like a, I don't want to call it a holy grail, but when you got that opportunity to be there full-time, was that a pretty seminal moment in your career? Oh, it was. It was fantastic because they had two great teachers there. Jim Suddy, who had been the National Teacher of the Year in 2000 for the PGA of America, and Dr. Didi Owens, who was the LPGA Teacher of the Year. So it was from a learning standpoint, it was great because if I wasn't teaching, I was watching one of those two. And you had Dr. Owens, who she had a Ph.D. in education. And you had Dr. Suddy, who had a PhD in biomechanics. And I was getting the best of both worlds. I was getting to watch a world-class biomechanist teach very technical, very intricate stuff. Then I got to watch Dr. Owens, the, the PhD in education, teaching touches and feels. And it really helped me learn to blend the biomechanics into putting it in terms where people could understand and so it was an absolutely awesome experience for, for a young teacher to build a clientele. And then when you're not busy to watch those two, it was, it was a perfect storm for me. Did you feel like you had something to prove when you got there? Like obviously very, you mentioned two, a couple of the best teachers in the world when you got there, how did you become the guy there? And when you got there, did you feel as motivated as ever of like, I got something to prove that, you know, I, I I'm pretty damn good at this as well. I never felt I had anything to prove. Um, 
I just wanted to keep learning and get better at what I did. Um, I've never set out to try to prove I know and can teach better than anybody else. I just wanted to give, I want to give a better lesson tomorrow than I did today. And that's the way I've approached every day uh, of teaching and being there watching those two, um, as well as in teaching my own students and then going back over my notes. I felt I was getting better every day. You're from the South. How long did it take to get adjusted to the Chicago climate? I know right before we started recording, we were talking about how nice the summers are, particularly from a Southerner's perspective. I imagine the winter's a little bit tough. What was it like getting adjusted to the climate up there? I still haven't. <laughs> okay. I, I Honestly, I still haven't. It gets 50 degrees and I still have the ski cap on and, and the sweaters <laughs> and, the, and the jackets and then when it's 95, I'm walking around, they're they're melting and I'm not even sweating. So I, I don't know that I ever will get completely adjusted. And that's interesting because it probably changes the golf season, right? I mean, and, and you know, you have days here down south in early February. If you get real lucky and you catch a hot weekend in January, you can go out and bust out the sticks for the first time of the year. And then you make it through March. And for the most part, like April on, it's a pretty good season. That's not really the way it is up there. So I imagine the golf calendar in terms of what y'all's busy season is, is probably a little bit different than it would be if you were in the south. It, it is. But once once they're busy, they're busy. It is yeah. This place is golf crazy. They play in they play in weather that I would dream of playing. Um, one of our busiest tournaments at Cog Hill is uh, the Eskimo Open, which is the first Sunday in January. What a name! It is the first of Sunday in January, and they'll have two hundred fifty. They'll have two hundred fifty players. Uh, if there's snow on the ground, they put their clubs on sleds, and then when they're finished, there's a there's a bar downstairs with they have chili cook-off. They got the football games on. It is it is very, very well uh, attended. In fact, I can get you tea time if you want to play this year. I might have to check out the uh, Eskimo Open. <laughs> like, that's a, that's so amazing to me, too, because I, like, I see some of these Instagram videos sometimes that make me laugh where it's so cold up north, they'll stick like a drill in the ground to get their tea in the ground and stuff like that. But like for like some an event like that, <laughs> Is snow on the ground? Is that a deterrent at all? Like, do you have to make sure it's dry? Like, seriously, how? Like, no. at what point does the course get unplayable? It doesn't. <laughs> That's amazing. It's, we have two courses that are open year round, regardless. Courses one and three are open three hundred sixty five days a year. So, if if you want to play, you can go play. We have uh, we have two groups that play year round, regardless of of the temperature. Wow. So golf glove wise, I would need real gloves. Is that is there some kind of technology there or do you just brave it with your normal Titleist glove when it's that cold? I have no idea. I'm not playing. <laughs> Fair enough. That's uh that's pretty amazing. So you get you get to Cog Kill, you're getting your feet wet, you're starting to find your footing. When did you start working with guys on the professional side of the game? When did that kind of come into play? Um when I met my wife, she was a she was she was a great player. Um, she played in the Curtis Cup team in '96. One of her friends she had met, she was a junior member at Bay Hill, was Dickie Pride, yeah. and Dickie came in and he played um, at the uh, Web.com event at uh, the Glen Club, and I came in. 
he came in and I gave him some putting help in my, my putting studio. And uh, he wound up leading after the first round and they were interviewing him in the press room and he just thought gave my number. He said, I got a putting lesson from Kevin Weeks. Um, he really helped my putting. Uh, if you want to get in touch with him, here's his number. And all of a sudden I get four or five media people call me. I had no idea why they're calling. He just fly, gave my number out in the media room. And um, I started working with him. And then I had Michael Bradley and Mark Wilson one within two weeks of each other. And I think it was 09. Um, Mark won Mexico and Michael won Puerto Rico, which at that time was one tournament in between them. And things got a little nuts. How much time elapsed between the Dickie Pride giving your number out to the masses and those two things? Because I had read about Bradley and Wilson happening, you mentioned around 2009. Was Dickie Pride, like how much time was in between those two occurrences for you? Oh, I really don't know. It was two or three years that uh, that I worked out on tour. Um, it was probably five years um, before it really took off at that magnitude. I was teaching four or five guys on tour. And and then um, those two happened back to back and it, it got busy. Who were the four or five guys on tour that you were teaching before that happened? Um, Dickie, um, boy. Uh, Michael, Mark Wilson, I'd worked with him some. Um, Brian Davis. Yeah. Um, I, I'd worked with, with those guys and I'm sure leaving uh, Johnson Wagner. Um, and, and then uh, Michael and, and Mark one. So Brian Davis, I believe he's the famous one that called the penalty on himself at the uh, RBC heritage mm -hmm. out of the bunker uh, about a decade mm -hmm. or so ago, made a pretty great career on tour. Right. Johnson Wagner, terrific career on tour. Working with those two guys, did that come from Dickie giving your number out, or did you know them previously? Well, I did know them previously. Um, I started traveling the tour some with Dickie, and you know when when somebody starts having success, other people start noticing and, and start digging around and asking, um, "Hey, can you take a look? Do you have a few? Do you have a minute?" Um, that that's kind of there. Those guys are always looking. They're always searching. And so when the Dickie Pride thing happens, when he agrees or when he is asked for instruction from you, are you nervous? I mean, I know it's it's just another like professional golfer. You've given tons of lessons before. I imagine you probably didn't think in the moment, hey, he's going to give my phone number out after he leads after the first round and things are going to change. But like when you're like, wow, this is, a, this is a tour guy. He's right on the cusp of making it back to the PGA Tour the first time. Were you nervous at all during that lesson? I, I wasn't. He was a friend. I, I, I've only been nervous once during a lesson on tour. Um, and that was at about 13 when uh, I'd known Brad Faxon for a while. And Brad was in the studio looking at everything during the BMW when he was doing television. And then he then he turns to me and says, OK, then what what would you tell me? And Faxon asking me the question about his putting, I that was um, my assistant at the time kind of looked at me, cut his eyes and gave me that, all right, big boy, you're up. 
and, and that was uh, that was quite the moment. And and I gave you some stuff, and we wound up uh, working together for about a year and a half. So for those out there listening who may not know, Brad Faxon, arguably the greatest putter of all time, and all of a sudden he's just asking you for putting advice. I'd probably be a little nervous too. It's like, well, what, yeah, what, do, was, I tell, what was, do I tell this guy? That was the that was the only time I kind of went, oh boy. Um, but I, I had known Brad, and we had we'd had a couple conversations about putting and and short game before. So it was, but yeah, that was the first moment that it was like, oh boy. Deep breaths. So you start. Hey, boy, you better be right. Yeah. Because <laughs> he, like, so back then, I, that led me to another question. I don't, like, that's probably, they got shot link going on. I know you mentioned he wasn't playing, but like the next time he went and played, were you like, I hope he putts well? Like, are you, are you tracking uh, how he's doing that round? No, um, because Brad and I've spent a, I did not help him, but I spent a good bit of time around Lauren Roberts as well, and both great putters, and they never talk about making or missing. It's lines and speeds because you can't control makes and misses. All you can do when you're putting is roll the ball down the line you want to, the speed you want to, and let the hole catch it. And they both were fantastic about not trying to make putts, but hitting lines and your speeds. We'll get back to Kevin in just a second, but I wanted to take a quick break to remind you. Podcast is brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website. The inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. Football season coming up. Go ahead and sign up for Skybox's NFL and college football picks. If you're into gambling, you're never going to profit in the long run based off of just your own brain and your own leans before kickoff. Skybox are the professionals. All you have to do is sign up. You can try it for a day, a week, a month. You can go all season. I'd recommend the year-long VIP pass. You can try it for all sports, one particular sport, whatever it may be. You sign up, use the promo code RIPPY, R-I-P-P-E-E. That'll get you 20% off. And they'll send you a picks package in a nice color-coded spreadsheet categorized by unit. And boom, you're more equipped to profit than you were by not using Skybox Sports Picks. They're the only way to profit in the long run. They're the professionals. They've done it year after year, improving themselves to profit, to make their clients a profit year after year. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Podcast is also brought to you by LB's University Avenue. Go see Greg if you're a Rippy Wright subscriber. That's rippywrights.substack.com. Get a free newsletter from me and discounted meats. Right now, the deal is three six ounce bacon wrap fillets for 20 bucks. That's about a $40 valuation you're getting there for 20 bucks. Just go show Greg proof of subscription. He'll get you set up. Then go find all your own favorites. They have all kinds of delicious cuts of meat, outstanding sausages, fresh seafood. It's the greatest butcher shop in the world. Truly a crown jewel of the town of Oxford. If you haven't been to LB's, you're missing out. Prime grilling season. It's hot outside. Go throw something delicious on the grill and get it from LB's. LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. All right, back to Kevin Weeks. That makes sense. That's probably why I'm not a good putter. I'm not sure I've ever actually thought about putting uh, the way that they do. So you start. You mentioned you started working with Dickie and traveling a little bit around on tour. How does that work from a golf, from a teaching pro perspective? Because obviously you're coming into your own at Cog Hill. I mean, the the teaching pro life. It's not exactly one where you work part time. There's some long hours there. How like nope. is it? Is it club by club? Like how did how did that work with you traveling around part time and also being an instructor at Cog Hill? Well, 
Well, fortunately, we're independent contractors and we make our own schedules. And I would teach Thursday, most weeks I taught Thursday to Sunday or Monday, and then would fly out either depending on where it was. Uh, Sunday night, most of the time I flew out Monday, flew back in on Wednesday, would see the two or three guys that I was going to see, and then would teach Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And then I'd go out uh, maybe two weeks later or three weeks later. And then as I got more and more, I was out about every every week or every other week. And then in 14, I was out 21 weeks, and including the last eight. And I had a wife and two kids, young kids at home. And, and that was kind of – that's when I went, no, this isn't worth it. Because I was literally working four, five, six months straight. And you're at that point, it probably has to be not a little bit conflicting, but there's party. It's like, wow, this I've made it. I guess the way to ask it is, did you when you're doing that and you're bouncing around the different tour events while balancing teaching at Cog Hill? Like, did you ever reflect back and think, I can't believe I actually made it this far? Like, did you ever envision that when you started out at you know CCJ and Castlewoods that many years ago? No, the only time I had that moment was in 2012, walking down the fairway uh, with a girl I had worked with since she was 10 years old, um, and she was walking down, doing trick and practice round at Black Wolf Run in the Women's U.S. Open after freshman year at Notre Dame. That's the only time I had one of those moments. It was like, wow, how did I get here? Why that moment? I don't know. Maybe because I'd worked with her for so long because tour players are already great. Just about anybody can teach them. They're they're like any professional athlete. They're 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 kind of freaks. Um, they just know how to make impact. They just know where a target is. They just know the touch and feel. It's just inbred in them. And, and to have somebody you worked with for for that long, spent that much time with, to to play in a, to qualify an event like that at 18 years old was, was a cool moment. And that's the first time I walking down is really cool. My assistant was caddying for, her and she walked ahead of us because he and I had to go back and get something and uh, stand in the middle of 18th fairway at Black Wolf Run. He stops and goes, you know, we've come a long way. This is pretty cool. And that that's when it hit me that, yeah, this kind of isn't normal. That is pretty cool. When you go to a PGA Tour event, I see the coaches fly out and like they're standing around the putting green or they're standing behind a guy trying to work some stuff out on the range. How long are you there typically? Like if a guy flies you out and he wants to work on something throughout a week, how long are you there? And then when they're actually between the ropes and playing their round, what are you doing? Um, most of the time when they were playing, when I was out there, I went home on Wednesday night to teach because I okay. taught my, my normal clients Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Uh, the, the couple times I went and walked, I just would, would watch and see are the root because you can't get close enough to see much um, when they're playing in an event. I was just checking are the routines the same? Do they take the same amount of time over their shots? Do they make the same looks that they do? Because as I'm really big on making practice as much like your play as you can. Like uh, at the range at, at Cog Hill, our range balls, I put them 15 to 20 feet behind the student and they can only take one ball at a time up there because I want every shot to be just like they do when they play. And I'm watching to see when I go to an event, 
how are their mannerisms? Is it the same as when they practice? Because what's the difference between a golf shot in a practice round and a golf shot in a tournament? There shouldn't be one because it's just another shot. It's you should be into the process of what you're doing, not into the results of what could happen. Right. And it's the mental side of it, I guess. Cause if you'd asked me that question, mm -hmm. I would think, well, there's a bunch of people standing around. If this goes off the hosel, we could have a real situation mm -hmm. here, but it's also just the sheer fact of just being under the gun. And it's so much different than being on the range and, how do you get that out of a player? I mean, tour pros, it's probably a little easier, but you mentioned like with the moment with the girl at Notre Dame that you'd worked with since you were 10 years old, how do you get that out of a player? Well, how do you lessen the gap between the range shot and competition? Well, it, it's, it, it's tough. You try to, in fact, my assistant, the caddy for wound up playing in the uh, qualifying for Tory Pines, the one tiger one on the broken leg. And the whole day was, Hey, you know, this is just like playing the Canadian tour because he played the Canadian tour two years before. And I was down uh, talking to three or four of the tour players that I knew and I'm watching him and everything's good. He looks around and he looks around and I got guys, I got to go deers in the headlights and he, he, get to him. Miguel, what's up? He goes, you know, I was buying your bullshit. This is just like the Canadian tour, but he goes, Ernie Els, who is hitting balls next? Don't play the Canadian tour. <laughs> That's a pretty so, good way to sum yeah, it up. You do your best, <laughs> and you know he's not wrong. Um, and, and you just try to get from day one with us. Everything's process. Um, I'm not a Cubs fan at all, but I love Joe Madden. I loved his comment when he was asked why these kids were so good when they were just coming up, Chris Bryant and them. And he said, it's very simple from day one. We focus on the process because the process makes you fearless. When you focus on results and outcome, you become fearful. And you know, when you become fearful, what do you do? You tighten up, you get, you pull in the snow more than if you're driving down the, down the expressway and you drive between two semis, you feel your hands tighten up on the steering wheel. Well, that's what happens in tournament golf and we do everything we can to try not to do that and try to focus on the process to do what you're supposed to do. That's really well said in a lesson. Have you ever whipped out the uh, other less complicated line of thinking that Joe Madden often uh, dubs, which is try not to suck today. Have you ever, if you're throwing that out of yeah. the student. Yeah. All the time. Absolutely. All, all, all the time. Um, just <clears throat> don't worry about the outcome. You're going to hit a good shot or you're not. And by stressing you over, is it going to help you? No, I mean, it, it's not, it's just, it's the yeah. hardest mental block to get over. So for you, when you're doing that and you're flying out on tour and you mentioned get back on Wednesday nights at that point in your career, is it hard to get amped up for a Thursday lesson back at the club after you've just been teaching a PGA tour player for the last couple of days through the practice rounds? The the only time that was hard was when Garrett qualified for the U S open at, at Tory. Um, he didn't want to ask me to go out there. And I said, do you want me to come out there? He goes, please. I mean, I didn't finish the sentence. He's going, please. And to take the first flight out that morning to San Diego, fly back in on the last flight, that night and then teach 11 hours the next day. That's the 
first time it had that big high of being at the U.S. Open with somebody that had completely revamped their whole golf game and qualified for the U.S. Open. And, and then the next day, my first lesson was a 40 handicap. That was <laughs> that was that was a letdown. It truly was a letdown. I I hope that person isn't listening. Hey, if he's got an index and it says 40, you know he's going to try hard. The potential may not be there, but if he's willing to register a 40, right. he's probably in it for the long haul at least. So at least there's the upside. That's there. right. With uh, I read something about Mark Wilson won on the PGA Tour in 09. This goes back to that stretch that you mentioned. He wins and then Bradley wins in Puerto Rico within a span of a couple mm-hmm. weeks. And he mentioned something that you had told him about the putting <coughs> something about like more weight on the right side or widening it out right leg. What did you, I'll mm-hmm. start there? What did you actually tell him? That Mark is a left hand low putter. Left hand low putters tend to get too much on their left side. They don't get enough loft on the putter, and they wind up hitting down with no loft, which is a really bad combination of of things. So. How that all when it came about, Mark called me one Friday and asked if he could see me at all that weekend. He had uh, played at um, L.A. and had missed the cut and finished last in putting. Could I look at him? I went, sure. Only thing I had was Sunday night at 6 o'clock. So I worked him in at 6 o'clock that night and widened his stance, got some more tilt in his shoulders, because uh, that's another thing the left-hand low players fight is a real high right side. Everything getting on their left side, getting too much weight in their front foot. And, and he was hitting down with no loft. And I just got him back under it and with some with some tilt. And we did a couple other things. And all of a sudden, he had a, you could tell he liked it because the light bulb went on. And I didn't know. He was leading the next week because he literally won the next week after being in. And one of the kids in, in the group says, uh, Coach, was that Mark Wilson that came in after us last week? I said, yeah, it was. He goes, you know he's leading, don't you? And I had no idea. So, you know, that was way before streaming. This is in 09. And uh, my assistant, Garrett, pulls out the computer and he's watching it shot by shot. And he's seeing it before I see it. And um, I could tell by his face when he won before he could tell me. And But that's what we did was we widened him more tilt and a little added just a bent his putter and added another degree of loft on it. You're a very well-rounded teacher that I imagine knows pretty much every part of the golf swing, but it seems like a lot with particularly on the PGA Tour player side, it specialized in putting. When did, when did that become an emphasis for you? Well, um, I have studied putting – since 98 that's when i started my putting lab because i had just enough physics in high school and college a couple of classes i got to take twice so i got a real good understanding of it um that i didn't understand how a stick on an angle could swing straight back and straight through and that's what was being taught at the time was straight back and straight through and that didn't make any sense to me and then when I was at Grand Cypress, one of the guys that I would pick up and take to the airport was Stan Utley when he was taking lessons from Fred Griffin. And then Stan felt he obligated to play golf with me and talk, to, talk putting and all because Stan was a phenomenal putter. And he was teaching that the toe opened and the toe closed. 
And I played enough competitive golf that I didn't see how that could time up under pressure. So I didn't trust either thing that was prominent at the time. So I started my own lab to study exactly what was going on in the putting stroke. When you say study it, is that like, what does that actually entail? Because you mentioned like, it didn't make sense to you. Like, how do you know throughout the studying process? Like, Hey, what I'm saying makes sense. Are you just going off just well, what you believe? No, I, w I was very fortunate. We had a man that played at Cod Kill, hung out back there. That was a um, PhD in mechanical engineering. It was an R and D with Wilson and together came up with an idea uh, we got a patent on a laser system that showed where the putter was aimed at address and impact and could study it that way. And then uh, I got the second Sam putt lab in the country when it came in and it helped me fill in some blanks on things that I couldn't figure out. And it gave 28 things, parameters, very scientific using ultrasound. And the lab kept growing I eventually got a force plate. Um, I bought their first prototype force plate and put it underneath, had it embedded in my, my putting lab where I could see where the pressure was, heel, toe, left, right, to study the effects of pressure in your feet on the ground in the, the putting stroke and how you could make changes to the stroke, the loft, the lie, the face at impact, which is the most important thing. 95% of where the ball goes off of putters pure, where's that face aimed at impact? And the lab just evolved uh, from there. Eventually I put a gears 3D system and studied the, the stroke, how the body moves and what influences what in the stroke. So I don't use the lab as a, as a catchy name or whatever. It's truly where I study what goes on in the putting stroke. Wow, that's unbelievably interesting on so many different levels. And so when you see something like that, and in contrast, and a guy wins on tour with the uh, putter that Callaway uh, just stopped making and everyone wants a jailbird now, you're like, ah, this is not actually how it works. It's not really the putter. It's the uh, it's the workman. Like when you see something like that, you're like, no, 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 I can fix this. It's not the putter. I think somebody putted, put put it in their hands. They like how it looked. They like how it felt. And, and they made some putts. And... The, the tour's not very far off from the NFL being a copycat league. If somebody's having success with something or somebody, somebody everyone's going to try it because everyone's looking for that edge. They're trying to make one more, one more shot. So when I, I looked up the tournament, the BMW, obviously Coghills hosted a bunch of events. They had the PGA Tour event for a long time. When you're an instructor there and you're a pro, the week of the tournament, what are you, do, what are you doing? Do you have any responsibilities? Do you get any cool perks? Um, I imagine you're not watching. Are you watching like a spectator like the rest of everybody? I generally went to the media tent or, or else I had a, had the Coghill access pass and I would walk inside the ropes uh, stay out of the way, but mostly went to the media tent because they only had about 25 or 30 televisions um, with with that and, and the football games on. And that's, I would go watch, uh, that's when I did watch some of the guys I was working with. I'd go watch them play to get a better idea of how they handle pressure. And because we're closed that week, we couldn't teach uh, our normal lessons. So I would, I would go 
watch my guys or go hang out in media tent. What's the that actually like when it uh, when the PGA Tour hosts an event at your course? Because when they moved the Sanderson from Annandale to Jackson, it was actually kind of funny because like the members would bitch about the tour like owning your course for a week, and God forbid the you know the gym and all that's closed for a couple weeks. Like, what's that like from your end? Um, we normally close two weeks before to get the course ready. Um, and then they would have a certain uh, BMW outing or Western Golf Association outing. And then the week of the tournament, we're shut down. We're 72 hole facility. We would have 18 holes open on the far side of property, but it was, uh, it was in the summer in July. It was nice. It was a week to recharge the battery. Um, I'd go film players, get as many players to come up. Some of them I knew, some of them I didn't. And they would come up my lab and I would get their data so I could study the video and the SAM report, the horse plate data, and just use that week to learn to get better and make uh, make some connections that you didn't normally get to make. When Tiger wins on that golf course five times, like did did you meet him? What's that? That has to be a nice yeah. flex. Uh yeah, it's he was he's special. There's no doubt about it. Mark Wilson was actually playing with him when he shot sixty two, and and to talk to Mark about that of about that was he said he literally could do no wrong. It was his day, and when when the greatest gets going, it's always fun to watch him. And you never could watch him um, up close because you couldn't get close. But he would practice at the back of the range. And I was always back there watching guys hitting balls myself. And a couple times I would be hitting and I'd look at 30 yards behind me and it was Tiger hitting balls over me. And that was a little unnerving. Are and, you hoping for a Brad Faxon moment where he looks at you and he's like, hey, what do I do about this putting thing? No, not, not, uh, not a chance that I want uh, one in that one because that's uh, a you're, a there's no win. All you do is get criticized for for messing it up and and b what what goes on that Sean Foley and I were buddies. Um, we broke in on tour together and what he went through. I I I didn't want that. That makes sense. It's a lot of scrutiny, a lot of attention. Like I mean, Tiger's gone through various coaches. That's not necessarily unique to. You know, a guy that's had a long career on the PGA Tour, but everything is scrutinized with Tiger Woods. So when you start getting recognized by all of these rankings and these awards and things like that, right, you've been in the top 100 instructors for it seems like almost 12 years now. When that starts to come, did that change anything for you in your career? Or was it just a nice like, wow, OK, like pe other people think I'm pretty good at this as well. I imagine at that point you probably knew you were pretty good at it. But what's that like for you when you start getting that recognition nationally? And from an instructor perspective, you become a bit of a household name. That's a great question. It's uh, at first, it's, it's really humbling that when you see your name up there and, and then it's hard because then you feel the pressure to give that person a lesson that comes to you as once you're a top 50 teacher in Golf Digest or top 100, you feel that you should give that much better of a lesson. And you, I kind of equate it to, you know, sometimes you see the players that sign for big money 
and they really struggle because they're trying too hard. It, I understand that pressure of it because it's very similar what I felt once I, I made the made the list. It's like, oh gosh, now I've got to teach like one instead of just teach like Kevin Weeks. When you get named to that and you've been in that mix for so long, what would you have to do to not become a top 100 instructor? Would you just have to start like hawking the stack and tilt or some like experimental method? Like how would you go back down? Like, like once you're in it, like what would you have to do to not be one? Um, become complacent. Fair enough. And, and become complacent and not working every day to get better. Not, not continuing to study and do your homework and and do your research rest on your laurels that hey i'm good i don't need to get any better and you know um rocky balboa you know he got beat when he thought he was good so you got to put keep working to get better when you start getting in that 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 rare air of the top instructors, I imagine you also have a lot more people pitching you different technologies and stuff. And when I was a kid, I'd always have Golf Channel on, so you'd see all the infomercials. And now with the college thing and streaming, I don't probably have it on as regular as I used to. But did that happen for you? And how do you sift through on the scale of like Aaron Obelhoser hawking any product that anyone sends him versus like what's real and what's not? Did you have to sift through that at all? I try everything out. I like, send me one and I'm going to try it out. And I find it up front. I'm going to try your product out. I'm going to use it. I'm going to see if it does what you say it does. And I'm going to quantify it because I've got the gears 3D. I've got a 3D force plate. If it's putting, I've got the sound putt lab. I'm going to see if it does what you say it does. And if it does, okay. And if it doesn't, I'm not going to use it. I won't say that it doesn't work, but I'm not going to use it. And some of the companies will go ahead and send you, and some of them you never hear from them again when you tell them you're going to do the research and quantify it. When you sift through that and you start trying to figure out what works and what doesn't, for you, you mentioned you know you have a pretty good idea of what you think is the right way to teach. If you're trying to teach an amateur – how to play golf and go through the golf swing. Do you have a method or do you just look at a student and see what works for them? Like, you know, I joked about the stack and tilt method, but like there was an right. era where it was like, this guy teaches this way, this guy teaches that way. Do you have a method or is it dependent purely on who you're instructing? Purely on what the strengths and weaknesses are of the athlete in front of me. Uh, you know, you, you couldn't ask Greg Maddox to pitch like John Smoltz. You, you couldn't ask Kirby Puckett to swing like Dave Winfield or to hit the ball like Winfield. And it's the same thing in the golf. You have to see what they can and can't do. What is their shoulder mobility? Where do they get their power? Do they get the power from the release, from their legs, their rotation? Where do things come from? And, and then you build from there. And also you have to take into consideration how what's their time constraints? What are they able to do and what are they willing to do as far as the time resources to put into getting better so a lot of that goes in before you can ever tell the athlete hey i want you to change your grip i want you to take it more outside whatever 
power is something that's always talked about, particularly at the amateur level. It always cracks me up to talk about like rollbacking clubs and equipment and stuff. It's like, look at every weekend warrior. They're trying to get the ball out there from 230 to 250. What's the biggest misconception that your amateur weekend warrior has about where power comes from? Most of the amateurs that I hear, they think it comes from the hands and arms, that they think it comes from how fast they can hinge and unhinge it. And truly, the power comes from the vertical forces that you put in the ground and how much vertical force and when you apply it for most people. So when you're trying to relate that to, say, a 12 handicap, what are you trying to get them to do versus the whole hand, wrist, and just trying to swing as hard as you can with your arms? What do you try to tell them to um, do? Uh, putting a generalization on this, but generally you want to see them from left arm parallel on the downswing, swap, downswing side to impact as they're rotating their front shoulder is also to have some lift from their pelvis and their rib cage working up because the more vertical force you can put in the ground, the faster you can rotate, the more you can make the end of the chain go faster. It's like snapping a towel. You snap the towel by being able to stop the towel and spin it. I've known Kyle Berkshire a long time. I worked with his short game as putting when he was in high school and college. And Kyle told me something I didn't understand a number of years ago. To hit it hard, you have to have good breaks. And it took me a while to understand what he was talking about is you've got to, to hit it hard, you have to learn how to stop your body to get the club to go flying past you. That's a wild way to think about it. That's very fascinating. So where are you on the spectrum of, there's always a big debate of like beating balls for two hours versus learning to go out and play. How do you convey that to amateurs? Like getting out on the course versus actually spending a bunch of time on the range and hammering golf balls. Well, you need to spend, I don't like to see anybody hit balls for more than 40 minutes. Anything over that I think is counterproductive. Uh, Doing your drills, doing your exercises that prescribed for you. And after a period of time, if you if you're working on your swing, and that's why I love teaching up here. We have the winter to to build golf swings, and then sometime into March, first of April, you transition more into playing. And then I like to see my students uh, every couple of weeks, and we monitor what we built. We do short game, we do playing stuff and seeing how things are, are, are working. But you have to, you got to play, but you also have to put some block practice in if you're trying to change a motor pattern. If that motor pattern is already in and you're not working on anything, warm up, go play. How often do you get to play? What is your golf game like? I haven't played an 18-hole round in about seven years. Whole, are you serious? Wow. Yeah, because, well, I'm one of the most competitive, driven people you've ever met. And if I can't go out and shoot 74, 75, I don't want to go play. I get more enjoyment out of about 80% of what it teaches juniors. And I'd rather take that time and go up nine holes with them and talk to them about playing strategies, learning to read a pin sheet. Okay, the wind's here. You, you've got 150 in. Let's hit a little cut shot here. This is a draw pin. This is a win you want to draw into to hold it. I get more enjoyment out of that 
because I can't, I'm too busy to work to keep my game in shape to play. So I would rather go out with them and do that than play myself. One of the things I learned when I was a, a kid, uh, Tim Basil would give me lessons and he was a really good player and he made it to the, whatever the national level is where they go play the final for the PGA of America mm -hmm. and the top, whatever club pros get in. And he got up there to that final stage of qualifying. I forget the name of it, but a couple of times. And he's like, you don't understand. Like a lot of these guys are club pros, but they don't actually give a ton of lessons. Like Mike Small's example of that. I know he's the head golf coach in Illinois, but he plays a lot of golf. Did you know that when you got into the business, there's like not all club pros are created equal in terms of like how often mm -hmm. they are able to play and get to play? Because that's a very wide ranging gap and very much more so than I think people understand it to be. Right. Um, there's some jobs that that's their job is to play with the members. Um, there's some clubs in, in our area and other areas that the, they hire assistants that are really good players and their jobs to, to play with the members and give them a tip here, a tip there, and I might tip my hat to them. That's great if you get it, uh, if that's what you want to do. I just wanted to teach and develop players at a high level. And, you know, I played in several state opens, played in three or four Illinois opens, um, made the cut in our, in our section championship every year. But it was more important to me to get better at teaching than it was to playing. Last thing I have for you to get before I get some quick open thoughts and we get out of here is the at this point in your career, you mentioned a couple of times not getting complacent. At this point, do you feel as motivated mm -hmm. as ever? What else do you want to accomplish in your career? Mm -hmm. um, I want to give better lessons tomorrow than I gave today. That's it's truly that simple for me. Um, I am. I feel lucky like our state match plays, our junior state match plays going on right now. And they're down on the final eight and four of the eight are my students. Um, I want, when they come out next week for the lesson, I want to give them a better lesson than I gave them last week. It's, it's that simple uh, with me. I don't set out to do anything. Um, I sit back and sometimes pinch myself when, when you see you win national teacher coach of the year, You've got nine tour wins, but at the end of the day, I just want to give, if Brian comes in for a lesson, I'll give him the best lesson he ever had. So for you, for someone that enjoys it this much and is so ingrained in the day-to-day -day process this many years later, I know people talk about retirement all the time. If you actually did retire, what would you do? Like, <laughs> is that something where you never really think about it because you enjoy it so much? No. Yeah, I, I don't see me retiring. Um, I might cut back spend some little more time hiking or, or, or whatever, but as far as completely not teaching or coaching, I don't, I, I don't know what I would do. Who do you like in the open this week? How do you see this playing out? Um, you had Roy Ruin in the Scottish. That seems to be a trendy pick, but what, uh, how do you see this playing out this week? Well, I'm lucky. My wife played in the uh, 96 British amateur at Hoy Lake or uh, Liverpool. And she does a really fair golf course. She liked the golf of course um i looked at um scotty you gotta like scotty Sheffer when you look at his last seven events his worst finish is a t4 not bad that that's not a you know that that's not bad and that'd be somebody that yeah you you i would have to look at for that record you know he's gonna be in the top 10 and the greens aren't really that fast. They're a little more like what he grew up on. 
I, I like Scheffler. Um, you know, Brooks Kepka finds a way to make the majors look easy. Um, is it his attitude? I'm not sure how he does it, but he just makes the majors look easy. And, and if I had to take a flyer on somebody, maybe it's because he would be so great for the game if he did win, because he is a great guy, but Fowler. And he's there was resurgence on what he's done. He contended at the uh at the US Open. Those would be the three. Okay, I, I know they're but those are three that that I really I really like and it blew me away with uh Scheffler's record in this last tournament. Is there I remember watching Golf Channel a couple of years ago and I think it was for a US Open and I was listening to Brando Chambly on golf now or live or whatever it's called. And he was talking about how like X guy can't win here because he has a shallow swing plane and he can't get the ball out of the rough. And I was like, well, that seems a little specific, but is there a actual swing profile tile style of play that really translates to that type of golf? They'll be playing across the pond this week. Is there something that benefits a certain type of player versus others? Um, I think what, after talking to a lot of the players, and I've talked to a lot of players that basically asking them that question over the years. And most of them, they say experience is the experience of playing over there in the conditions. Uh, if the conditions get bad, because that's something you can't simulate. We don't have that much over here. Um, and that's another reason I kind of like Kepka because he spent a year or two in Europe playing. And that's the, the big thing would be, the experience of playing Lynx golf in those conditions. That was everything I had for you. This has been awesome. He is Kevin Weeks. This was uh, certainly one of the more enjoyable podcasts I've done. I love kind of nerding out on the golf side. I'm playing this weekend. I'm going to take some of these tips. <laughs> if we lower my handicap by a couple of shots, I really, really appreciate the time. Thank you for doing this. And uh, we'll have to do it again sometime for sure. Oh, my pleasure, Brian. You keep up the good work. I uh, I love what you guys are doing at MPW Digital and, and your podcast. Uh, it's awesome, man. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right, that'll do it for our show today. I really appreciate Kevin's time. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Super smart guy, one of the best golf instructors in the world. And uh, hey, Ole Miss fan, how about that? So I really appreciate his time. Great dude. We'll have him on again sometime. Um, but I hope again, you enjoyed it. And uh, hey, maybe learn something you can take to the course this weekend. So we'll be back at it actually a little later today, probably dropping a uh, two for podcast Friday with the way the schedule worked out. I spoke to Weldon Rodenberg. We did a little bit of SEC Media Days recap. So be on the lookout for that a little bit later on. You'll have a great start to your weekend and we'll have another podcast uh, here in a few hours.